You're all very, very welcome to Gospel in the City today. Hopefully you can all hear me, and that means that you'll therefore be able to hear Tim, which is much more important. Um, so, very welcome here today. As usual, there's tea, coffee, sandwiches, help yourselves as we go through, um, cold water as well. Um, and one of the things we want to do at each of these is to introduce an element of our vision. And the element of vision today that I've been asked to speak about is the Gospel. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection and what that means for us and how, and we really believe that this is the most important thing we can know, the best news ever and will really help those of us that are Christians to live um, as Jesus' followers in our workplaces. So um, we love coming together here every week um, to hear more of what God has to say about, to us and today as I said we've got Tim Anderson here to talk to us. Our series is um, The Bread of Life and Tim's going to um, talk to us about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So I'll just read the passage and then hand over to Tim. So, and sorry, I just prayer to start as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together here today in the middle of a busy week. Would you give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us today through your word? Um, and would you make it clear to us how that should change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he, knew, he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, he said, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Amen. Hello everyone, it's really good to see you all um, and thank you so much for the opportunity of just being able to come and um, have lunch with you but in particular to, to feed on the Bible, to actually feed on the Lord Jesus Christ who 
as we're going to see, hopefully, he is the bread of life. That may sound a really weird um, kind of description of, of Jesus, but hopefully that will become clear as the, the series goes on. Now, in the mid-1980s, um, every summer, I would help lead Christian camps. And they were back-to-back. There were three Christian camps, and they were 10 days each. My particular role was to be in charge of catering, so the cook's team. And it was very, very nerve-wracking. So numerically, the camp was really big. I would have thought there would have been about... 130 or so, something like that. Uh, An enormous kitchens, a big cook's team. So months before the camps happened, I would have to sit down and think a a bit about the menu and with the help of others. And then just before the camp began, we would go off to a wholesaler, we'd bring in uh, all the food. But the great fear that I had was getting my calculations wrong. So that was the enormous fear that I had. You know, ending up, I don't know whether you've seen those catering uh, cans and tins of baked beans. I mean, they are enormous. And just ending up with too many of those or too few boxes of cereal or whatever it might have been. And the question often looming over us was this. Will we have enough? Will we have enough? Now... In our passage that, uh, Laura, thank you, Laura, for for reading that passage for us. But in our passage, we have Jesus. We have a really hungry crowd of at least 5,000 people. And then we have the friends of Jesus. We have the followers uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a major insufficiency. So apart from the five loaves and uh, the two fish, there was just simply nothing. I mean, there was just no food. So chapter 5 in John's Gospel, this kind of uh, biography of Jesus, chapter 5, Jesus himself is in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 6, he's not actually in Jerusalem, he is in the region of Galilee. And he goes up onto the hillside, the hillside just overlooking, I don't know whether you've been there, but it's a very beautiful part of the world, and it's overlooking the lake, uh, the Sea of uh, Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. And his purpose is to spend time with his disciples. But instead, we're told in verse 2 in our passage, that a large crowd follow Jesus onto the hillside. Now they do that not because they want to follow Jesus, not because they want to obey Jesus, not because they're coming to Jesus for forgiveness and for life, but actually according to verse 2, it's because of all his miracles. That's why they're flocking to him, all that he was doing on the sick. And they were saying to each other, that is the kind of king, that's the kind of king that we want. So there is Jesus and he is on the hillside and he sees the large crowd in verse 5. Many, many thousands of people were told very specifically actually in verse 10 it's uh, 5,000 men. But there would have been, I think, women. There would have been children as well. Uh, Some people even estimate that there might have been as many as 20,000 people there. That's possible. We just don't know. So Jesus sees this large crowd. He sees this large crowd coming towards him. He then turns to a local boy. and We're told that his name is, is Philip from Bethsaida. And probably Philip knows where the bakers are. 
So Jesus says to him, verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now here's the thing. Just look at verse 6. It's a fascinating verse. Because verse 6 says, about Jesus saying this to Philip, he says, he said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. And this really is just the first thing I want us to think about uh, just for the, the next few minutes. It's simply this, that the Lord tests his people. The Lord tests his people. Now, remember that Jesus was in total control. Of course he was. He was God on earth. He was the Word made flesh. He knows exactly what he would do. And yet he kind of throws down the gauntlet uh, to Philip. And he said this to test him. Initially, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Uh, I don't know whether you remember at school, possibly even actually in your place of work, in uh, your workplace, even in the office, Um, Sometimes we just hear, don't we, people having a good laugh at the expense of others. So it might be a practical joke. It may be that someone just falls for it. They end up making a real fool of themselves. And for some people, it's just all very entertaining. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is not doing that. Quite the opposite, actually. Because remember who Philip is. So... Philip is a learner. He is a disciple of Jesus. And actually, Jesus loves him. He's not kind of trying to uh, trip uh, Philip up. Instead, he is teaching Philip about kingdom work. He's teaching Philip about gospel work. Just in the years to come as an apostle, uh, Philip, big time, is going to be involved uh, in doing that. Jesus is now making him ready, preparing him for that. And here is an opportunity to learn. And Philip's reply shows how much he still has to learn in verse 7. He's just thinking materially, where is the money going to come from? We've got virtually no money. Just imagine just how much it's going to cost to feed all these mouths. One writer um, says, says this about Philip. Philip's response betrays the fact that he can think only at the level of the marketplace the natural world. I wonder if you identify with that. Just kind of thinking with his blinkers on. Uh, thinking just in terms of materially uh, at the level of the marketplace. And Andrew, his friend, doesn't fare much better. So he brings onto the scene this boy, possibly actually a young man, and he had five loaves and he had two fish. But then he says, at the end of verse 9, Andrew says this, What are they for so many? As if to say, look, a fat lot of goods that is going to be. No good whatsoever. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is testing them. He is testing those that he loves. And the test, I think, is this. In the heat of battle, when you're doing kingdom work with very little, with scarce, limited resources, will you remember who God is. Will you remember who Jesus is? And at this particular point, it seems that Philip and Andrew weren't doing that. Sometimes Christians today don't do that. Let me just um, put it like this. Just think for a moment of some of the errors, 
some of the, the mistakes that you might expect a Christian to make? I don't know whether you're a follower yet of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whether you are or, or whether you're not, but you just might have some idea of just some mistakes and errors that Christians can make. And here is one of them. And sometimes Christians can get so bogged down with their own circumstances that we completely lose sight of who Jesus is. You know, we know he's there. Yes, we know intellectually that he's very great. We call him the Lord Jesus. But in reality, uh, we forget that. This great and wonderful king who knows exactly what is going on, who is in total control, we forget that. Think about this uh, question for a moment. What would you expect to shape the vision of a church? What would you expect to shape the vision of a church? Can you uh, imagine a scenario where you, let's say for argument's sake, you're just involved in some kind of church life, but can you imagine a scenario where you bring your scarce resources in a puny, weak as they are, to God, expecting him to do far more beyond what we could ever imagine. And that, for many, many Christians, is a steep learning curve. So if there's someone here who isn't a believer yet, and you're wondering what it's like to uh, be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you step onto that track of being his follower, you will discover that that is a steep learning curve. Because the Lord is someone who tests his people because he loves them. But the second thing to observe is that the Lord provides for his people uh, as well. And very occasionally, yes, he, he does that in miraculous ways. I mean, this is a miracle, isn't it, that we're looking at uh, in John chapter 6. But nearly always, in fact, uh, he provides in very, very ordinary ways. You know, through Asda or through Tesco's, uh, through doctors, nurses, hospitals. All are his provision in his created world, for which we are enormously grateful. So we know he provides, but we need the reminder, don't we? And we do have uh, that reminder in this passage. So some very obvious things. To begin with in this passage here, Jesus Christ exactly meets the need at hand. And it is interesting, isn't it, that he puts the disciples to work. He kind of makes his disciples proactive. And he says, verse 10, make the people sit down. So it's springtime, April, May. And we're told, it's interesting, isn't it, this detail, we're told that there was much grass for people to, to sit on. If we were to go into another of the Gospels, we'd even be told that that grass was green. And that's odd, isn't it? Because would we ever expect grass to be anything other than green? You know, purple or blue or red. But actually, in the Holy Land, by July and August, the grass would not be green. It would be brown, scorched by the sun. That's why one of the other Gospel writers said it's green. I'm just letting you know that because obviously it's telling us what time of year it is but that's telling us isn't it that 
It's reassuring us that the gospel writers are very careful in putting their material uh, together. I don't know what you believe about miracles, but the way that John is writing and recounting this miracle is, this really happened. This happened at a particular time of year, in April or May, which actually was also the time when the Passover uh, feast and festival was to happen. Just another detail in uh, verse 10, how many there were, just 5,000 men uh, as well. But look at what uh, Jesus does in verse 11. He took the loaves, he gave thanks, and then he shared the food to everyone as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. You see, it's obvious, isn't it, that Jesus is just exactly meeting uh, the need. But of course it begs the question, well, why ever can he do that? And it's because of who this person is. That he is the creator of the world and sustainer and provider. So just worth remembering, I think, at this point, that every mouthful we ever eat Every shirt that we wear, every breathe, breath that we breathe comes from him. The Christian is going to be someone who is conscious of that and grateful and thankful to him for that. We're completely, every uh, breath that we breathe, completely dependent upon him. In him we live and we move and have our being. Now let me say as well that it is a bit of a mystery, isn't it, why some people in our world have lots and other people in the world that we live in have little or nothing. That is a mystery. But the very last thing that we can do is to lay the blame for that at the feet of God. You know, that is something which he has caused. He could have done something to have prevented that. Absolutely not. It is a product, if you like. It's a function of our global and our personal greed. God, Jesus, is the complete opposite of that. Complete opposite. He is good and he is generous and he is gracious. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. Just read John chapter 6. Now, of course, whatever we can do to redress starvation and poverty, we must do. But we cannot blame God for that. You really cannot do that. And our passage today makes that so clear because, in fact, not only does Jesus meet the need, he does more than meet the need. He provides in abundance. So those 12 baskets, verse 13. 12 baskets full of leftovers. It's amazing, isn't it? It is a miracle. So here is the, uh, the biblical mathematics. It won't, by the way satisfy a transfer tester, an AQE examiner, or the GCSE A-level examiner. Uh, but this is how God works. It is biblical mathematics. Take five loaves, take two fish, use it to feed at the very minimum 5,000 men. In reality, many more. What do you get? Everyone is fully fed with still 12 baskets left over. The equation is this. Human inadequacy plus divine sufficiency equals superabundant supply. So human inadequacy plus divine sufficiency 
equals superabundant supply. That is the way that mathematics works in the Bible. Uh, you won't read it in a math textbook, uh, an accountancy textbook. But that is the way it works in the Bible. That is how God works. Our inadequacy, in a sense our puniness really, God's sufficiency, put them together and you have abundant supply. Everyone here, just as we gather this afternoon, we hate crises. Um, I know you do because I hate crises. Absolutely hate them. We would just love our personal lives, our church life, if it is that we're involved in the church, to be smooth sailing, you know, no hiccups. Just imagine for a moment if that's what it really was like. I just wonder if that would really be incredibly boring and we would miss out on so much. Not least the overflow of the Lord's blessing through our very meager and minuscule contributions. Uh, we could uh, apply this and follow this through in lots of areas of the Christian life, but just think of prayer, for example, uh, for a moment or two. I think being reminded of this from John chapter 6, it gives us enormous confidence in praying. You know, we bring our needs to the Lord, whatever they may be. We may even pray that our needs will be answered in specific ways, but we certainly pray believing that the Lord can answer in ways that are far beyond that what we can ever expect or ask for. It's actually what Paul the Apostle says later on in the New Testament. He, God, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ever ask for or think or imagine. I think it's right to say that the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ really is someone who when they move forward with Christ, it's a kind of part and parcel of maturing in Christ, we even rejoice in our limitations. I don't know if it is you are a Christian today, but whether you've reached that point, you know, we rejoice in our limitations. So different, isn't it, from the way that the world thinks. Inadequacies, limitations, weakness, enormous opportunities for the great blessings that the Lord has for his people. So the Lord tests his people, the Lord provides for his people. The last thing actually is much less obvious. And uh, it's this, that the Lord gives himself for his people. Um, slightly different actually from the way I put it in the notes. I think I put down there the Lord uh, gives uh, life for his people. But the Lord gives himself for his people. It's not immediately obvious in this passage, but it is here. So as people saw more and more of Jesus, they were asking key questions. You know, where did he come from? Who is he? What is he going to do? Where do his sympathies lie? And there's no question that the crowd are just awestruck by who this Jesus is. This is a prophet who has come into the world. And they were thinking of a way back earlier on at the beginning of the, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 18 of what Moses has said the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me uh, from among you. And they were right, weren't they, this crowd? They were right. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, a kind of Moses figure 
who is just going to step into dire circumstances and uh, rescue God's people from their enemy, from slavery, like Moses rescued Israel. But, even though they were right at one level, they were completely wrong in another. And in reality, they completely missed the point about Jesus. And we see that from verse 15. You know, they were going to come along and they were just going to take uh, Jesus by force, as if they could ever do this, and make him king. Their kind of king. Their kind of king. You know, the kind of king who would just do more miracles and he would provide more food and more material blessings and health, wealth, prosperity and defeat the Romans. What a king that would be. But the heart of it is this, that really is not why Jesus came. That is not why Jesus came. That's not the kind of king that he is. It's not the kind of king that people need, actually. Uh, One writer puts it like this, he would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. And if we just go backwards for a moment or two, back to verse 4 of our passage, it's a really key little bit of this passage. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. The Passover, celebration of the exodus from Egypt, but at the heart of that rescue and judgment is, remember the killing of a lamb, the killing of a lamb in each Israelite home, the sprinkling of that lamb's blood just on the, the door lintels, the doorposts. And then, if you like, the, the kind of receiving of that lamb, the eating uh, of that lamb. And as the angel of the Lord saw the blood, he, he just passes over that particular home in Egypt. That family saved from death. The lamb is their substitute. The lamb dies in their place. So when John says in verse 4 that the Passover was at hand, that's actually... You know, that should suddenly make us sit up and think. That is a very significant comment because that's exactly who Jesus is. So Jesus is the Passover lamb, spoken often uh, about in the Old Testament, and now he comes uh, himself to be that. So this miracle of creation, uh, it looks forward to the cross. It looks forward to the sacrifice (laughs) for sin. It's a taste of abundant life, full forgiveness, complete forgiveness that is going to be received by all those that, if you like, receive that bread of life, by all those that receive the Lord Jesus and trust in him. And yet the miracle also actually looks forward to the heavenly banquet that the cross makes possible, the fullness of abundant life in uh, the new creation. So let me just finish by asking you this question. So what is your crisis today? And I know you have one. Um, What is your crisis today? Uh, Our biggest crisis, of course, is our sin. You know, I cannot atone for my sin. That's the crisis that I am in. That is our biggest crisis. It's a weight around our necks, destroying our life. We need it taken away. We need a sacrifice. Christ came to do that and be that. You will have other crises as well. For me, actually, it's a, it was interesting, just I've been preparing 
uh, for today. But for me, it's a meeting tonight when eight of us are just going to sit down and we're going to discuss a ministry project that will cost £1 million. And we just don't have the money. We just don't have uh, the resources to do that. Be interesting to see what our reaction is going to be. Uh, your crisis will be different. Uh, what will we do with that crisis? How will our crisis, so to speak, relate to Jesus, uh, who tests his people and who provides for his people and who even gives his very self, who gives himself for his people? So we all have a crisis. But the question is, how is that crisis going to relate to Christ? So shall I pray, Laura, and hand back to, to you? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed the bread uh, of life, that you came from heaven, uh, that you came to give your life as a sacrifice for sin. We simply acknowledge afresh uh, today that we cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot earn uh, forgiveness. We recognize, acknowledge that is the deepest crisis uh, that we have. But thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you have given uh, yourself to be our sacrifice, that we might come and feed on you in faith and in trust. We pray just for those particular crises that are going on in our lives, and we dare to ask uh, that in the light of this passage that you will enable us to, to look to yourself, uh, to remember that you are the God who is good and gracious and so abundant uh, in your provision. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.